why do you want to be seen and heard and validated by other people? If it's because, you know, if it's rooted with the ego. I want them to like me. I want my name to be known about around the world. I want to be important. I want to be significant. And you will never be happy. Validation is make me okay. Feedback is help make me better, right? The onus is still on you to do that, but they're two different things. And unfortunately, most people live their lives with wanting to feel validated by somebody else. And it usually starts with a romantic partner. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, hello, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we are talking to Monica Berg. She is an international speaker, a spiritual thought leader, and she is the chief communications officer of the Kabbalah Centers. Now, if you've never heard of Kabbalah, it was... um, popularized by Madonna, but of course it is an ancient spiritual practice rooted in Judaism. And Monica is someone that I have followed for many years and is very much a, you know, as she calls herself, she's a self-proclaimed change junkie. And I really find her approach to things very empowered. Um, you know, she is, she channels her many years of Kabbalistic study and her own personal life experiences to really show people how to move through things like fear and self-sabotage and to create a life that's not only, you know, feeling like it's working, but that a life that you love, that you are loving um, to live, that is fulfilled and powerful. And really it's all about self-actualization. And in our conversation today, Monica and I talked about, she has two books, um, Fear is Not an Option. And the other book is called Rethink Love. Both are excellent books. I was pleasantly surprised with both of them. And uh, with, with Fear is Not an Option, she makes this bold statement of understanding that you can completely eliminate your fears. And so she distinguishes obviously between like healthy fears that are sort of baked into our neural uh, network around, you know, if you're at a, you know, standing at a ledge or, uh, you know, something dangerous, that type of fear is something that you, you don't necessarily want to eradicate, but it's the illogical fear, the fear of rejection, fear of public failure, um, which is where most people, um, spend their time. So she walks us through the anatomy of fear. So the different kinds of fears, how we can determine which fear is which and how we can get to know our fear and how we can move through it to eradicate, uh, to eradicate it. 
And we talk also about becoming more conscious. This is something we've talked about on the podcast before with many guests. And this idea of thwarting fear, beginning in the mind and then moving into the body this and, and, and into the spirit. We talk about some of the seven tools for working through fear. And then we move into her book, Rethink Love, which I thought was an absolutely fabulous book, uh, broken down into three parts, the me part. So actually doing your own work when we're thinking about relationships, then the me to we, and then the we. And Monica, throughout our conversation, really is very personal, shares a lot of personal stories, her own struggles with anorexia, her own struggles with pregnancy, with the way that the world was telling her to relate to her children. And we talk about guilt and blame and shame, self-sabotage. We talk about how to fight in a relationship. How juicy is that? And completely enjoyed my conversation with Monica. I know that you are also going to get a lot of wisdom, both in spirituality and how to up-level your own response and relationship to fear, the things that may be holding you back, and how to have courageous conversations and set boundaries in the places that you need to. As women, I think this is something that we continue to need to work on is our ability to set boundaries for ourselves and the idea that we can advocate for ourselves and we can be empowered to follow our dreams, I think is really important. And we touch on that as well. We talk about desires, we talk about defining our desires, and we talk about how to move forward with them. So please enjoy without further delay, my conversation with Monica Berg. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Well, I am very excited this week. We are welcoming Monica Berg, the CCO of the Kabbalah Center, to our podcast today. Welcome, Monica. I'm so thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. And I originally, you know, when your team first reached out, um, of course, I knew who you were. I've sort of very loosely uh, dabbled in Kabbalah when I was in New York City. I went to a few seminars. Um, very, My understanding of Kabbalah is still very pedestrian. Hopefully, uh, it'll be a little bit better at the end of this conversation. Um, but when your team reached out, and as I was just saying to you in the pre-chat, like hand-delivered books, like who does that? Uh, first of all, um, I read both of them and I, we ori I originally wanted to talk about Fear is Not an Option, which is your first book. And then Rethink Love is the second book. And I said, okay, we have to talk about 
both of these, because I think that there's such fundamental teachings that my audience is going to absolutely uh, appreciate and learn from you. So we're going to do a bit of a mashup today, if you're okay with that. Usually we do like one book at a time, but I think, and you know, depending on if we don't get to everything, maybe we'll have you back at another time. But I think that the lessons, I thought these were excellent, excellent books. And I, I, I want everybody to really be able to profit from some of the teachings that you have in here. Thank you. All right. So let's start with um, fear is not an option. And I love this book so much because you, I mean, the first, from the first page, you're really, um, uh, you're really captured. And I'll just, if I can just read um, the foreword and it says, I am the voice in your head that says you aren't good enough, not strong enough, not smart enough. I am the one who keeps you small, who stills your tongue, who quiets your passionate voice. I'm the one who stops you, who says no, and who tells you to expect less because that's what you deserve. I make your hands tremble, your heart race, and your palms sweat. I keep you up at night and give power to your doubts. My name is fear. (laughs) So right from the beginning, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's talking right to me. Um, And the the whole through line of the book really is is almost a, a very radical statement in that you're not proposing that we tolerate our fears. You're not proposing that we sort of get in bed with and get comfortable that we have fears, but that we can actually completely eradicate um, fears and that we can eliminate them. And I'd like to start off this, we're going to talk about the anatomy of different fears uh, in a moment, but I would love for you to just expand on on that possibility, because I think that there's so many, you know, my audience is women um, and I primarily women. Um, and I think that we all think, okay, well, we're just like, it's like Thelma and Louise, like it's just me and fear, like in it for the long term. And I, I, from the first couple of pages was drawn in. So can you expand on why you think that we can actually eradicate our fears rather than having to tolerate them? Well, I know we can, because I've made it a practice to do so in my own life. Um, And I think that unfortunately, especially in the world we live in today, the feedback that we get is that, you know, I have this thing that's going to help you cope with your fear or learn to live with it. And you can do it through perhaps medication or meditation um, or a lot of, uh, you know, work sitting on a therapist's couch. But in reality, we bring our fear along with us. We take it with us wherever we go. And when we realize that we have more power than we think we do to direct our thoughts, to rethink things we think we already know, to change old belief systems, we can live a life that's without fear. Now, there will be other times in life where new fears come along. The key is that every time you identify a fear, you actually work in that moment on changing it and removing it and elevating the experience. So in my life, right, I worked through and I outlined that in my book, the really big kind of paralyzing fears that I had growing up. And when I made the choice to no longer live in fear, and it was a choice that was kind of forced on me, um, if I wanted to live a happy life, which I can unpack for you. But once I decided to do that, then whenever a new fear would come up, first of all, it didn't seem that big anymore because everything changes, right? Again, we just have to decide in which way we want to change. And 
once I was able to do that, then as soon as something new would come up in that moment, I would force myself to do the opposite of what my comfort, which was our comfort really is to feed the fear. And nobody really wants to admit that, right? Nobody wants to say, yes, I'm a fear-based person or yes, I allow my fear to really be in the driver's seat. I am in control, but in reality, it's not really like that unless you decide. So you unpack that a little bit for us. I would love for you to expand and you are very, very much an open book in an open book in both of your books uh, around your own struggles, but how were you, you know, to paraphrase, how were you forced to face your fears and what does it mean for you to have a happy life? I would love for you to unpack that for us. For sure. So the one universal fear that everybody has, which I don't think we're aware of unless we really make it a point to do this work is the fear of the unknown. And that for everybody can be into different departments, right? We can have a fear of being homeless or losing money, especially if we grew up seeing that kind of lack in our family or for our parents, if that struggle is real, or we can fear, um, in my case, it was mental illness, right? So once I started to look at the big kind of three different things that had happened to me in my life. So the first one that was really profound was when my uncle became schizophrenic when I was seven. So for me as a child, it seemed like it pretty much happened overnight, right? So one day he was normal and healthy and the next he was erratic and um, violent really and didn't make much sense and was really quite terrifying for me. So that was the first fear I had. And I had this now illogical fear of, that somehow this was contagious, right? So I would avoid anything that scared me if I was running, you know, I was a marathon runner, if I was running past somebody when I was an adult or even a teenager, I'd hold my breath till I passed them. So I wouldn't catch the disease. Now I know it's illogical now, but it felt really real then. Uh, the next big struggle I had was when I had anorexia and I was literally starving myself to death. Um, and that really came from a lack of self-love, a lack of joy, um, really not at all accepting who I was or understanding who I was. So that also was, I was very fear-based then. I was very lonely. I felt very isolated. I didn't have a voice. Um, I certainly hadn't identified it anyway. And then when my second child was born, and that's now I was age, so I was seven, right? And then I was anorexic. It started when I was 17 uh, for five and a half years. And then I had my second son when I was 27 and he was born with Down syndrome. And I didn't know that I had a feeling, right? An intuition actually when I was pregnant that there's something not quite right about this. And, you know, most people, and this was my experience, when a pregnant woman is telling people that they feel something's wrong, it scares the other people and they usually don't want to hear it. So nobody actually wanted to hear what I would say. And they'd want, no, everything's fine. You're fine. Don't worry about it. So when Josh was born, it was almost like my worst fear coming true in that why did it have to be his mind? Because that was what terrified me. I felt like even though it wasn't schizophrenia, that his mind was compromised. And would I ever be able to love him like I loved my first child? Would I be able to mother him or connect to him? And then I realized that I could spend the rest of my life being afraid of everything and anything. I could be afraid of if he would have the other ailments that come along with Down syndrome, would he develop a hole in his heart? Would he not be able to do sports? Would he not be able to eat solid foods? What would it be like when he would go through puberty? And I was thinking these thoughts as day one, right? When he was one day old, two days old. And I just knew that this was not a life that I could lead. I just would not survive that, right? And having come so near death with the eating disorder, I, in that moment, chose something else. And that was, instead of feeding the fear, 
instead of worrying, which is a part of fear of what he would be or who, you know, what might happen. Instead, I thought, okay, who will I become? Right. Who could he possibly become? I just found out about his limitations on the day he was born, but I had a lifetime to discover what he could be. So from that space, I really stopped everything and said, okay, I know who I don't want to be. I don't want to be this fear-based person. I don't want to be somebody who is worried about what people think of me or, you know, um, is there something wrong with her? I had so much shame that my body had grown this child that was less than perfect. Now that was my consciousness at the time. And once I had awareness of those thoughts, I knew that really wasn't who I am or who I meant to be. And so that was really the beginning of my um, point of eradicating fear. You know, I went from feeling like a helpless person my whole life, meaning I can't control or change a situation. And while you can't, you certainly can control or change your feelings about it. And once you do that, of course you can eradicate fear. Right. And you can change, as you mentioned, you know, you can't control the things, you know, external from you, but you can, of course, can direct your response to them in the way that is aligned with, and what we'll get to this, your, your highest self, you know, your fully actualized self, rather than, as you were mentioning, you know, your, you said my consciousness at the time, this sort of fear-based egoic, like, what are people going to think? And I want to talk about some of the, you know, really common fears that we have. And that that's one of them. You know, I remember just a short story. I so Josh, that's my second child. I have four kids. Um, he was a few months old and I went to this local coffee shop around uh, from where I live, but it's also where I grew up. I went to Beverly Hills High School, you know, and that was just a whole, I mean, you're really kind of schooled and really caring about what people think of you in that environment. So I, again, had to work very hard at changing that as well. But I ran into somebody from high school and I remember thinking, oh my God, they're going to, they're going to think these horrible things about me. And obviously it was connected to a feeling a, that I still had about myself, even though I had done a lot of work in that area. But also I was studying Kabbalah at the time. I was really immersed in spirituality. And then for me to hear that thought, I thought, wait a second, this is so beneath you in terms of the potential of what you want to become ultimately. Right. I love that. And thank you for your vulnerability as well. I think that there's so many times that, you know, whether it's a, a child, uh, we, I hear a lot, I have a membership group sometime that there's been discussion around, you know, I found out that I'm having a girl and I really wanted a boy, you know, but there's no place that you can actually grieve that. There's no place that you can actually say that out loud in the same instance with Josh, you know, there's no, you know, socially acceptable way for you to uh, express some of these fears that you have uh, around their future. But I, I love the reframe that you're talking about where it's like, well, what about, why don't we just see what we can do? Like, let's just see what his potential is and what what's going to unfold for him rather than thinking about the have nots, you know, the things that he can't do and making a really long list of all the negatives. Can we make a list of all the positives? And you mentioned this and I, I, I can't recall which book it is, but something around the lines of, you know, you can, you can choose to have a victim mentality where life is constantly happening to you, or you can, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something to the, to the effect of, well, I can also change the way that I, I can't change the outside, but I can also change my internal environment and my internal landscape to be able to rise up and meet the demands of my life. Right. Rather than things happening to you, they happen through you. Right. And when you allow that process to occur by really embracing the unknown, by really being able to challenge yourself to at least be open to see obstacles as an opportunity for growth. And that's really a hard one for people to live at first, because in truth, we are comforted by 
negative emotions very often because it's what we're familiar with, right? right? If somebody is used to being a victim, even though they don't want to be that, that's the comforting thing that they know. To be able to transform that, you have to say, okay, how do I want, what do I want my experience of this situation to be? Because that's where your free will comes in. That's where your choice comes in. And that's really truly where you live a life where you feel happy and fulfilled. Yeah. It's, and it's almost like, you know, better to, I'm again, paraphrasing, but better to know the devil, you know, to be in bed with the devil that, you know, rather than the devil that you don't, which is the fear of the unknown. And I want to, I want to unpack that a little bit more, but just before we do, I wanted to parse apart the different types of fear that you talk about. So you have a couple of chapters uh, that you title the anatomy of fear. And there's three different fears that you go through. And I would love for you to walk us through each of them so that we can begin to see where we do have fear in our life, where it's potentially justified and where we can begin to alter our responses to them. Absolutely. So the three types that I identify in my book are healthy, real, and theological. So healthy fear is like it sounds. It's set up for our survival and protection. It's there to keep us safe. So for instance, if there's a, an open flame or a fire pit, you know not to go too close. Something cautions you because if you do, you could get burned. Same thing if you know if you go hiking up in a canyon and you get too close to the edge of a cliff, something, right? You even feel it in your chest or your stomach to move back, right? It warns you, it cautions you. Intuition is also part of the same thing. That sixth sense feeling you get. I've certainly gotten it when I'm about to go into an elevator and somebody's in there and just like, hmm. Something doesn't really feel right here. And I'm going to honor that. Now, it doesn't mean that person is actually going to cause me harm. But if I have that feeling and it's unnerving enough, I will actually honor it. One of my favorite stories um, to uh, to explain this is the story of Carol Durant from Murray, Utah. And she was um, approached by a police officer one day while she was in a parking lot and he came over to her and said your car has been broken into and we've apprehended the suspect and we have some of your items from the car will you come to the police station with me to identify them so she got that feeling in her stomach of "Mm, not so sure about this she asked to see his identification so he did he showed her his badge and she reluctantly went along with him so they get into his car And they start driving down the highway and she notices they're going in the opposite direction of the police station. So she says to him, what are you doing? This is not the right way. And he's driving with one hand with his other free arm. He's grabbing her, trying to handcuff her. And because she was already forewarned, she had her hand on the door handle and she was able to jump out of the moving car. He pulls over. He jumps out. A fight ensues on the side of the road. And miraculously, she actually escapes. Three days later, she's reading the newspaper. Two days later, she reads the story about that same afternoon that she was approached by this police officer. Another woman was approached as well, was raped and murdered. And this police officer was actually serial killer Ted Bundy. So it's an extreme example, but I think a really powerful one that those kinds of feelings, those healthy fears are necessary. Then there's real fear. So real fear is based in reality. It's as it sounds. It's fear of illness, of death, of aging, right? It's those things that actually do happen. But even with this fear, this can be transformed to be something that's useful for us, that is helpful. Meaning, for instance, I hear a lot of people, especially now during um, you know, COVID and so many people have so much loss with their loved ones, people really do fear, for instance, losing their parents, right? And I know some people who fear that they spend a lot of time ruminating that fear, right? Having that negative thought play over and over in their head. 
So much so that when they're with their parents, they actually are not really with them or able to enjoy them because they're worried and thinking about this fear. So I think you can transform that by actually appreciating the time that you have with them in this moment, by saying that you love them, by giving them the benefit of the doubt next time you get angry at them or reactive, right? It's to fully use that fear, right? That, that will happen for something that can be purposeful and meaningful in the now. The same thing with illness. If a person really is afraid of different things manifesting in their body, then look at how you spend your lifestyle and not just with food and exercise, but also with stress management, with how you how your thoughts are. Right. Because we know nothing's more damaging than that. So those are two fears that I actually say, okay, yes, they are necessary, but they need to be elevated. The one that we want to eradicate is illogical fear. And this, believe it or not, takes up about 98% of all our fears are illogical. And that is fear of um, spiders, heights, roaches, rejection, failure, right? All of those things that keep us really stuck and stunted and don't allow us to go and pursue the things that we really want to. You want to write that book? You want to, you know, go and try to be an actress or Whatever it is, most people, they're just so afraid of all of the things that might not be that they just say, okay, I'm not even going to try. And for me, that's the most damaging because you can really waste your life in that space, not doing what you meant, you're meant to do or why you came to this world. Yeah, I love that. And I think this is a good place to bring up shame because I think it can happen. You know, this Carol Durant story that you share, she had this intuition, this whisper, you know, resonance, something, you know, her resonance and this person's resonance, something was not matched up in the quantum or however you want to describe it. But I think with women, and this is, this is maybe a a female specific question, because I think that there's something to be said about female intuition and women's intuition, but we're so often taught that in lieu of that, that we should be polite, that we should smile, that we should, you know, get into the elevator and, you know, be like, just get over yourself. Like it's just an elevator. Right. So how do we, um, how do we begin to decipher first, which fear is which, and then how can we as, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll expand it, not just for women, but you know, I I would love it if you can maybe slant it towards women in your answer. How can we begin to move away from this, this fear of rejection or this fear of what other people are going to think? Like if Carol said, you know what, like I, that's fine. I'll make my own way to the police station. Or if, if, um, you know, you, you know, you said that I, I, now I honor it. If I don't want to get into the elevator with somebody, I honor it. I think that you are very much an outlier in, in the female spectrum as a whole, because I think most people would just have this inner dialogue, like, Oh, it's just like, just get it. Like, just don't make trouble, like get into the elevator and just smile, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's a really important point. And, um, and I love talking about this concept because when I had anorexia, I was full of shame and guilt. I mean, really, it was part of my a daily emotion, for sure, many, many times a day. So there's three um, big ones, right? There's shame, blame, and guilt. So I just want to go through that quickly because I think it's a really important point. So blame is, um, you know, something's gone wrong and it's your fault, yours. <laughs> uh, guilt is I've done something wrong and it's my fault. Shame is I've done something wrong and now I am wrong or I'm a bad person. Right. Right. So and then you carry that around. And then, of course, it's difficult, nearly impossible to honor 
your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, because you're pushing them aside to the point where you eventually won't even hear them anymore. Um, and I call this the shame of wanting. This usually happens especially to girls, as you mentioned, around the age of um, when they're in the third, fourth, fifth grade, they get feedback from either their parents, peers, society, that it is unseemly and impolite to ask for what you want. And I remember exactly when this happened to me when I was eight or nine years old. And it, probably it happened in small ways before, but I remember the time where I really felt so ashamed for asking. I was like, I'm never going to ask again. It's just not worth it. And it was such a trivial thing. We were at my family's, not really like I called them my aunt and uncle, but it, it's not by blood. It was my mom's best friend. They lived in New York and um, we were visiting and we were all in the family room with you know my siblings and, and that family as well. And the husband, my uncle went and cut some fruit for himself and he came and he brought the plate to the family room. And he says, does anybody want any? And it looked really good. And I said, oh, I'd love the piece <gasps> was all I heard in the room. My mother was so embarrassed. How could I ask? She jumped up. If you want fruit, I'll go cut it. And I remember thinking, of course, I didn't have the courage, but I'm not the one that's wrong here. I mean, I think it's rude to cut fruit for yourself and bring it in the room and not, right. not think about everybody else. Right? right. But the feedback I got was absolutely what you did was wrong and impolite and embarrassing. So we do get that feedback if you don't actually or you see it on report cards too. Like I would always get too chatty, too bossy. Like those are the things that I was told as a child, like on the report card, like too chatty, not working up to her potential, too bossy, bosses people around. Right. But if it was a guy, by the way, the chances are that would not be, that'd be like a leadership quality. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and I've worked really hard with my kids that they don't, you know, I can say none of them ever feel those things because I just didn't raise them like that. It was, and if they ever felt that from something outside of our house, I was sure to kind of nip it in the bud. So I think if each one of your listeners can look at where their life is right now and ask themselves this question, where is it that I feel like I need to hide myself, the truest parts of me, the things that I love or the things that I desire that I dream about, that's going to shine a light on actually where you need to do the work to really eliminate it. At the end of the day, everybody has to know this universal truth. People will judge you. It's just the way of life. It is something that we all do to different degrees and some work harder not to judge, but it is something that naturally we do. You're never going to make everybody happy. And if you spend your life trying to do that, you're going to be miserable. So where is shame coming from? If it's because you made a mistake and now you are a mistake, that's just the belief that needs to change. And it's not that difficult to do. The way that I look at failure is that I'm one step closer to what I'm actually going to be great at. And I do believe though, and this is the key here, I do believe I can be great, right? So the, the thoughts that keep shame alive is that you don't think you're inherently worthy of goodness. And that's the problem. So we have to rewind just a little bit because shame's like a really big thing to tackle, mm -hmm. to, to know that you are lovable and to try to be a friend to yourself. So that really, the step one in that is to identify the voice that we all have, our internal dialogue, is yours kind or is yours punishing? And so when you start to hear the voice and it's punishing, you need to stop in that moment and say, okay, this isn't going to help me get to where I ultimately want to get to. How can I say this differently? And usually it helps if you imagine you're talking to somebody you really do love unconditionally, like a niece, nephew, your child, your best friend, your sister, whoever, right? Um, and so it really goes back to those steps to really living a life where you can be free of shame. Yeah. And I think so many, uh, I would, I would argue that 
most women, if you ask them that internal dialogue, that inner critic, that inner gremlin, you know, whatever uh, you want to label it is, is negative. And, you know, you learn, I, I always call them the fab four. It's like, you know, mothers, fathers, teachers, preachers, like we get it from, and there's, of course you can go, you know, in, in concentric circles exterior from that, but it's very commonly the people that we look up to that we depend on for our survival, parents, caregivers, you know, we go to our uh, preachers or community leaders for advice, and they are going to be giving you advice based on the paradigm and the philosophy that they are entrenched in. So if they have, for example, when we talk about this in the context of women, if your mother and father have a certain paradigm about how women should show up, how they should behave, they should, you know, I remember um, my, both my parents saying, you know, children, not necessarily gender or sex specific, but children should be seen, but not heard. So of course, you know, I'm a loud bossy kid, so I'm seen, but I'm also heard. So you can imagine how that might've contradicted their predisposed, you know, beliefs around child rearing and how they needed to stop that. Right. So there's, um, and I think this is a useful, uh, what you're expressing is a really useful tool for our listeners, because I think that we're not even aware that we have these rackets in our head. We have these voices that are not ours, right? They've been implanted from, you know, our parents or who, you know, whomever, friends, uh, teachers, whatever it is. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think where a lot of people get stuck and I'm just so happy that we're talking about this. You know, I even meet with people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even, and they're still blaming their parents for for most things. Right. I mean, and it's kind of like I say this in a joke, but like at some point it's in bad taste to kind of blame your parents. Right. Mm -hmm. I never think I think that, you know, again, I don't think I'm blaming anybody. I think you just look at your life and say, okay, well, what do I want to make of this now? And you can change anything, any thought. Um, and And I think that there's a really helpful tool here as well. Because if you're able to look at your parents and say, you know, what kind of belief systems were they raised with? Like if you go back and rewind the cassette and you look at your ancestors, you kind of can really have compassion that they did the best they could. Even if you think it might be pitiful, quite honestly, it was their best, right? It wasn't for a lack of love. And, you know, I know we'll get into Rethink Love later in my second book, but that's why I always say love is never enough because people treat people very badly, even though they love them dearly. Right. So there's something else that is going on here. And I remember, you know, years ago, my mom was always videotaping us when we were little, which irritated me, quite honestly. I was like, why can't you just be with us and be present? And of course, now, like other things in life, I'm like, well, actually, I'm really happy she did do that. And I have these things to look back on or but more importantly, I learned a really profound lesson And that, um, so years ago she had these VHSs and, you know, they were, all the tape was thinning. They were, they were crumbly and very dry. And so I converted all of them to DVDs and I made copies for my siblings and, um, my parents. And I went to London that year. Like it was the beginning of summer. I gave it to a studio to do it. And for whatever reason, they sent it to me while I was in London, which I didn't expect. It came to me on my birthday, actually. And my husband had gone to the countryside with his friend who shares a birthday with me as well. And I was like, it's fine. Go have fun. I was with the kids, hopelessly jet lagged. It's like three in the morning and I'm looking at the stack of 21 DVDs. So I'm like, okay, I can't sleep anyway. I'll pop one in. Cut to three hours later or four hours later, I've watched 21. I watched my entire life on my birthday. And I was hysterical. I remember calling my parents in the morning saying, you did your best. I love you. Because what happened is 
I remember this one specific Mother's Day where I felt my mother was just at that time, my, my father had lost all his money. He was a millionaire and he had lost everything. It was a very difficult time for our family. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Then she went to work for her family. I just felt I had a lot of feelings and they weren't very positive. And this Mother's Day, I remember thinking that she was ignoring us and she was distracted. And I and I and that's all I remember from it, right? And this video, one of them captured that Mother's Day. And so I remember when it started, I'm like, oh, yeah, feeling all justified. Like, yeah, let's see. I remember this day. I remember how my mom wasn't available. And then the camera shifts to her and you see her face and you see that she is longing for her parents' attention and she's longing for her mother to notice her who's at the table also. But all I could see at that time was through my own lens of my mm -hmm. own needs, right? Mm -hmm. So it was the biggest, most profound lesson that I've, I've held to this day that you me, we all should go back at those most difficult times in our lives and look at it through the lens of an adult now and be able to see or try to go back if you don't have the video like I did, what must have everybody else been going through in that time and reframe your experience of it, right? Because to hold it as a, a grudge and, and how somebody let you down and that you, you, you didn't get what you were supposed to get in life really is, again, a waste of a life. So you'll see a theme in everything that I talk about or that I write about or I teach is I just don't believe in wasting time or wasting your life because you only suffer. So therefore, the responsibility for us to see things differently is only on us. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. And to your point, you know, my parents, your parents were doing the best that they could with the tools that they had from the trauma and all the things that they had inherited from their lineage. And I like the idea of reframing it and thinking about, okay, what, you know, rather than, and I often have talked about this in, uh, on the podcast, when I talk about sort of my own healing journey, where I moved from this like first person singular, like mom did this to me, dad did this to me, so-and-so did this to me, to actually looking at it instead of being an actor to being an audience looking at a play. So now you have this third party neutral position and you can see all of the different factors and vectors that are, that are influencing behavior from all parties. And I agree, like most of us, you know, uh, I mean, I've, I've talked to parenting coaches on this podcast, talked to a lot of mindset uh, coaches and you know, kind of the through line is you're, we're all going to screw up our kids in some way. And at the end of the day, the kid becomes an adult. And then the, it's the adult's responsibility to say, okay, this is where I am now. And I take responsibility for, in the case of like very acute or very deranged trauma, 
we're not letting them off the hook per se, like if it's sexual trauma or, you know, physical trauma, but you're taking responsibility for where you are right now and where you have the ability to go. And I think that people conflate often like, you know, forgiveness or, you know, uh, they, they, they conflate forgiveness with letting people off the hook. Whereas Mm -hmm. forgiveness is, and I would love for you to comment on this is something you give yourself, right? It's, it's like the, um, uh, I, was it Einstein? Like insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result or taking yes. the poison and expecting someone else to die. Like if you harbor this hate for, or this resentment, this grudge for the uncle who is schizophrenic or the father who was this or the sister who was that. And you think that that you can kind of play that story until you're, as you said, 70, like at some point it's like, well, that, those were the cards you were dealt. So let's have a stoic approach to this and think about how we can actually move forward with what we have. 1000%. I think very often people hold grudges because on some level they haven't created the boundaries they need to with that other person. Mm-hmm. So we think that by holding on to the anger, the hatred um, is, is the boundary. It's not. Once you actually put people in, it's not even a conversation you have to have. Once you're clear about how much space they're going to occupy or how much energy you're going to give them or what you will allow, what you won't allow, forgiveness actually can really usually follow very quickly. Um, and there's this great movie, it's called The Light Between the, no, The Ocean Between the Lighthouse. And there's this one part where um, it's a husband and wife, and he had a very, very difficult life. And she turns to him and she said, you know, how do you do it? So many things happened to you in life. They were difficult. People hurt you. They harmed you. And yet you forgive. And he said to forgive only takes once, but to hate and hold on to it, you have to give it energy and think about it over and over and over again. And it's just too much. Right. Right. And you talk about this, this is sort of unrelated, but I wanted to make sure that we, that we talk about, uh, this in the term, in the context of conflict. Um, there's a Kabbalistic tool that you refer to around waiting three days before you bring something up. And I think this is so powerful because we all know that whenever, you know, at least I've said this before, I've had other people who have said something similar, like if you say the thing, that primitive little jab or the thing that you think is going to win you the argument, like you've already lost, like you've already lost the fight. But if you allow that amygdala, that like charge to just drain a little bit, whatever residue is left is the thing that you need to actually address. Because at that point, you're not so red, you know, you're not seeing this, you're not seeing red and you're like, I can't believe it. And you did this. And this kind of blends into rethink love a little bit in terms of how we should fight. But I would love for you to talk about, I, and I'm, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the tool. I forget the name of the tool, but you said that there was a Kabbalistic tool where you wait three days and whatever's left, that's the actual thing that we need to talk about. Can you, can you expand on that? Yeah, it goes on the idea that um, when you say something, when you're angry, you'll give the most passionate speech that you'll ever regret. Right, right. I don't know, like in those moments, oh, and we feel justified and we feel right and we're going on and on. And then after usually, because what happens is when you wait three days, the emotion now has subsided, right? And so what is left is the real issue. And sometimes you're going to realize it was nothing. Other times it's probably going to be 20% to 30% of what you were really feeling. And that probably needs to be spoken about. And it is important to speak and, and say what you feel and advocate for yourself. 
um, so there is the proactive formula, which is when something happens, you pause, you know, you don't react, you go through these steps of really contemplating and then you speak if it needs to be spoken after far too often people don't do that. And I know that before I started practicing this, there would be moments where like, I was like, Oh, oh my God, I wish I didn't send that email or I wish I didn't say that. Or, and so now it's kind of like, um, and, and really you're able to see something that's really profound that people, I still, I mean, I had a conversation with somebody earlier today and they're like, I feel, well, I feel well, just because you feel, doesn't mean that you're right. Right. People take their emotions so seriously by waiting the three days, you're actually able to look at the emotion, but not become it. Because when we don't give that space, we become the anger, we become the sadness. We be, and then we think we're right because we really, it feels very real. Um, and then you're not able to see anybody else's perspective from that. And then but, if you speak too early at day three, you are wrapped up in shame. At least that's been my experience where you're like, and then that shame spark, you're like, God, why did I say that? Like, why didn't I hold my tongue? And I think that that's a, such an important practice where you just wait to see what's actually left. Even if you just sleep on it overnight, even just the next morning, everything is just a little bit sunnier, you know, a little bit brighter the next day. Things aren't quite as, you know, fatalistic as it is right in the moment. I agree. I think there's still some ego residue on day one. Right. Uh, by day three, it's pretty much it's been calmed because it's really the ego that's saying, you know, you are right. They are wrong. They hurt you. You shouldn't take that. You need to stand up for yourself. You know, you need to be heard. And yes, while we want to be heard, we don't need to be heard. You don't have to agree with me. You know, so it's it's it really shifts kind of the whole conversation when you are able to come from that space, which really can only happen after the anger or the emotion has dissipated. So let's follow this example all the way through to completion. And again, this is now we're moving into rethink love a little bit, but the three days have passed, that emotional residue has evaporated. And now we have this 20 or 30%, as you're saying, that needs to be spoken. How do we, how do we, and we'll just assume that this is a, uh, you know, a husband and a wife or, you know, a personal relationship of some kind. How do you go about expressing yourself? And again, coming from the lens of myself as a woman and from the women that I've counseled, setting boundaries <laughs> is not something we are taught. And it can be one of the scariest things, I think. Again, you know, building on the, the illogical fear that you were just describing. We are, we are so scared that people are going to cut us off, that they're going to get mad at us, that they're going to be just bewildered that we have said, hey, you know, we had that disagreement on Monday, it's Thursday now, and I'd, I'd like to talk about it. And this is how I feel, or this is like, walk us through how you might go about expressing yourself and setting boundaries. And you can use a specific example or, you know, just generally talking about boundaries, because this is where I see women, myself, I will include myself in this pile as well. Setting boundaries is not something that comes to us innately. It is a muscle that needs to be flexed. Well, I love setting boundaries now. It's really something that gives me so much joy, but I wasn't like this. I'm telling you, the girl that had anorexia would never, I mean, I would put myself in every uncomfortable situation just to make people more comfortable, right? Um, so I think that first you have to be okay with saying no or saying how you feel. So it goes back to that first step, really learning to love yourself, being your own friend. I think when those questions of what if come up, 
answer them, right? So what if you say something to your friend and they don't want to be your friend anymore? So what if that happens? Is that friend really worthwhile or is the relationship the way it's set up right now something that's healthy? Maybe it needs to change. It's not that you're going to write the friend off, but maybe they're not going to be have quite the same amount of space in your life as they have before. It's okay, right? Um, what if somebody doesn't like what you have to say? Well, what if they don't? Is it your responsibility to assuage their feelings? I don't think so, right? So if you take all those what ifs all the way, you'll end up getting to a place where actually there is no fear. There's clarity. And I think people are also afraid to take action and to create change, right? We really fear change. So this leads us into, I mean, I could talk about a lot of things for a very long time. I want to stick to what we were saying here. So I think when you go to set boundaries, you have to say, okay, if these people are really worthwhile in my life, they'll understand it might hurt them, but ultimately we'll get to a place that we're both okay. So what relationship are you putting first? Is it the relationship you have with yourself, the feelings you have about yourself, that internal feedback that you're giving yourself, or is it all external? What do they think? What do they want? What makes them comfortable? It's two different ways of living a life, right? So that's really, that's how you create a boundary. Who are you choosing in that moment? It doesn't mean that you're selfish in what you want, but it means that you have self-interest. So from that space, anything could be said. I got to the point in my life where I got so tired of um, living the other way, right? About the external and really being worried about them. And again, that was what the eating disorder was about, that I got to a place of, I will make mistakes, that's okay. I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to always be right. I am really just a human being having a human experience. And again, that kindness, right, for myself came up in that kind of dialogue. So now, um, and I got to a place, like if I hear something negative about myself, because there was, I had a bully for a lot, a long time in my life, for 20 years of my adult life, or a real bully who was in my circle in, in many areas that, so I couldn't really escape. When I got, when it got so much to the point where like, it was so much that I was like, this is ridiculous. And I choose me. Then I got to a place where there was this freedom of no matter what anybody would say about me or think about me, I didn't really affect me. I didn't really care. I didn't really give it thought. So today now that bully is not in my life anymore. And if I hear something that was negative or if I hear something that didn't feel right, I'll go to the person and say, hey, I heard this and maybe it's not true, but I want to give you the opportunities or something you want to say to me or is there something we need to discuss. I really want to hear what you have to say. It doesn't mean I'm going to accept it as truth. I don't tell them that part, but I really do want to hear it because I've gotten to a place where I'm very comfortable in my skin, right? So there's no conversation that I can't have now. We can all get to that place. But it starts really, again, which life do you want to live? The one where you are interested in external feedback or internal feedback. Right, right. And there's such bliss on the other side, isn't there? Oh, like once freedom. You, it's freedom. It's just like I can be myself and I feel now heard and seen and understood by me. You know, I think that we all have this and not to dismiss it. I think that it's important when we want to feel seen and heard and witnessed by other people. But if you can give that to yourself first, then it doesn't matter whether you get that from other people or not. And the why is really important. Why do you want to be seen and heard and validated by other people? Right. If it's because, you know, if it's rooted with the ego, I want them to like me. I want my name to be known about around the world. I want to be important. I want to be significant. And you will never be happy. Okay. Mm -hmm. If it's coming from a place of, 
I really want to feel good about my actions in the day. I really want to feel good about what I'm contributing in the world. I really want to look in the mirror and feel good about myself and how I live my life. That is internal feedback. And there is a difference between feedback and validation. Validation is make me okay. Feedback is help make me better, right? The onus is still on you to do that, but they're two different things. And unfortunately, most people live their lives with wanting to feel validated by somebody else. And it usually starts with a romantic partner. Um, And it will never, it will never, ever work. It will never work. That is so profound. What you just said, there's a difference between feedback and validation. That is excellent. I've never heard that before, but that is so well said, so well articulated. So let, let's move into Rethink Love uh, officially. I know we've been sort of dancing yeah, around yeah, a little yeah. bit. Uh, this is a fabulous book. Um, I will put obviously links in the show notes for people to click and, and be able to purchase it. And I love the book because you divide it into three distinct sections. So me, then me to we, and then we. And I love, again, that you start with the self because you are, in my opinion, and I, you know, just wanted to like clap for you when I read this in the book, you said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, that which you don't possess, you cannot give away, you know, to, you know, with this idea of if you don't love yourself, if you don't, if you are not comfortable in your skin and you're not able to give yourself unconditional love, to love the hairy bits, the lazy bits, all the dark, you know, shadowy bits that we are constantly trying to run away from. There's no way that you're going to be able to offer that to someone else. And I wanted to maybe start off, you know, you've mentioned it a few times, and I think this might be a great time to double click on it, which is getting close to our desires and our dreams and who we are, because it's, it's interesting you know, you've talked about your, your four children. I have three children and you see them when they come into this world, they're pure. They have no filters. They don't give a shit. Like when they're hungry, they cry. When they want to be picked up, they cry. When they're little, when they're two, they tell you what they want. It doesn't, they they don't. And you talk about, I believe it was your daughter who was like, I can't believe it. You drove right by. I wanted to see you. You know, she left you a voice message and you were on your way to a meeting. Like they don't, they tell you what they tell you who they are. And then somehow over time, we become adults who don't know how to advocate for ourselves. We don't know what we want and we don't know how to set boundaries. So let's talk a little bit about how we can get closer to our desires as, um, as humans so that we can understand who, so we can develop our relationship with ourselves to cultivate and fortify that in order to be able to give and to share in something with someone else? Well, the first thing is stop ignoring them, right? When you ignore something long enough, you start to not even hear them and you start to not even want them, right? That's the thing about desires that are tricky. When we no longer desire, actually, that's pretty much the end of our lives. If you look at people who are about to die, they've lost all desire. It it wanes, right? Depending on how you live your life, it goes faster for some than than others. Um, That story about my daughter, the profound part of that, which was what had inspired me then. So she was hysterical, right? Left the voicemail. I didn't hear that voicemail to after my meeting because when I drove off, I was on a call, went straight into the meeting. When I got out, there's that voicemail, but then there was another one. So they, I heard them back to back, right? When in reality, the first message she had recorded was um, at one o'clock and the second one was at two o'clock. But the first one, she's hysterical. Mommy, did you see me? I wanted you. I was thinking about you all day, expressing her wants, her desires, her needs without any shame. 
Then the next voicemail is like, hi, mommy, it's me. She's all happy now. Whatever she did, she's playing, whatever. Can't wait to see you. I can't wait to your home. I want to spend time with you. I love you. I want to tell you about my day. Bye. And it was so extremely opposite that in that moment, I was like, wow, she was able to recover very quickly from her disappointment because she gave herself the permission to want, to desire, and to express it. And therefore, she could move past that disappointment relatively easily onto the next. We as adults don't do that, right? Because what we do is we're like, wow, that bad thing happened to me or that thing happened that I didn't want because I'm not worthy or I deserve bad things to happen or because that thing I did five years ago that I'm still feeling shame about that's going to plague me for the rest of my life. Certainly, that is one way to live. It would be a waste of time to live that way, but that is a way to live. So to be able to live a life where you know what you want, you know what you desire and you're able to ask for it and you're able to demand it even or to create it, the one thing you have to do is to be able to hear yourself again with that kindness and then honor it. If you keep saying it's like if you have a child, right? And they're like, mommy, mommy, I want this mommy, mommy. And you're ignoring that child over and over again. What happens? Eventually they stop asking. At least they stop asking you. They're going to go somewhere else. Right, or maybe right. you have ignored them so long. You can't even hear them anymore. Right. We drown out the noise. When we do that to ourselves, to our wants, our dreams, our desires, the voice becomes so quiet, it's not even audible anymore. And you know what usually replaces that is other people's desires. Their voice is the ones that are super loud. And those are the ones we work towards fulfilling and working for. And then we're miserable in our older years. Why? Because we didn't live a life that was ours or that we really desired. And we're resentful. A hundred percent. bitter, there's, yeah, yeah. There's this really powerful book one of my favorite books is called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And it's this woman who she worked in hospice care and she actually wrote a blog about it that became this book. And there were five, these five same ones that every person had that she was seeing through their death. And number one, or one of the top ones was um, not living the life they were meant to, not making enough time for the things that are really important to them, like family, you know, people never regretted being like, I should have been in the office, you know, another 10 hours each day. No, it was that I didn't spend time with the people that I really loved. Another was not really putting energy into creating real friendships. I mean, at the end of the day, it becomes about those things we're talking about, right? About love, compassion, empathy, growth, perspective on, on life, right? That's really what it all comes down to. Right. And in the context of relationships, um, you describe, I believe it was a couple where, um, you know, they are happily married. And then over time, I, I believe it was the wife who just finds all of these things that start bothering her about the, the husband. And then the husband suddenly, you know, goes in for a routine procedure or something goes wrong, he passes away. And then she's able to say, oh my God, like, you know, in that reflection, like these things actually didn't matter. Like these things were just little, like he didn't pick up his socks or, you know, what didn't put the toothbrush away or whatever they were. And I think that we can very easily slip into this unconscious, uh, finger pointing. And you talk about again, uh, and I'm correct my pronunciation. If it's wrong, this Kabbalistic tool is called tikkun, tikkun. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. 
So that is, and that's to say, and I'll, I'll allow you, uh, the expert, to uh, to expand on it. But this idea that when we are having these reactions, these strong adverse reactions to someone, if someone continues to like push our buttons, or you know, you might reframe that and say you are allowing them to push your buttons. But um, this is something that we. This is a nudge. You know, maybe a, you know. A, uh, a gift in a way. And I'd love for you to explain how that can be useful in the context of personal relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I think often people um, look at their partner, especially if the relationship is not satisfactory and they say, you know, I'm not happy because of you, right. <laughs> you know, if you were different or if I was the different partner, then everything would be better. And then only to find that their next relationship, wow, there's a lot of the same things that are going on here. Same themes coming up. Um, and you know, if you don't, you know, relationships are really mirrors. They show us the things that we need to change the most, where our growth needs to be. But often we don't see it that way. So you miss that opportunity. When people come to me and they're saying, you know, I'm thinking about getting divorced, I, and especially if they have children, I say that this person's going to be in your life for the rest of your life and that you will need to learn to communicate. You will need to learn to be friends at some point. So don't exit the relationship until you finished your tikkun, meaning until you can find a place where those things that are making you infuriated, that really enrage you, you can get to a place where you're on the other side of it, right? Really finish your process with this person because the fact that they've come into your life and they've taken such a significant part or role in your life, is not just happenstance. There's a real purpose for that. And usually it is that you have some kind of karmic um, debt. And it, again, what, what is soulmates, right? It's two souls coming back together. That's a positive. And if you're ending up getting a divorce, it's still two souls that needed to actually have some kind of exchange or interaction together. So it would behoove all of us to see the process through. So that part of our tikkun is corrected. Usually people have one thing that is the major thing. That's how you know it's your, your tikkun. For me, um, I've always learned through my children, um, and my, and I've talked about my births, right. And fear is not an option. So for me, that was very much connected to my tikkun, this idea of need for perfection. I'm a Virgo. I really came into the world that way. I like a, a pencil with an eraser. I like a planner I like structure, but it didn't make me very happy. So I've gone really to extreme measures to change that aspect of myself. I call myself a change junkie to really be flexible, to really embrace the unknown, right? So everything that came into my life that triggered that fear, right? Would be an indication of where my tikkun is because that's where I was really uncomfortable. So wherever you find yourself uncomfortable in life, in any scenario, like the really thing that gets you, maybe for some people it's money, fear of not having it, right? And it's the theme that comes over and over, really see those processes through all the way to the end and you will you will correct or shorten that tikkun process. Right. And I think, um, you know, following up on the example that you just gave with your children um, around this idea of surrender uh, really spoke to me as well. You know, I've always very much, not a Virgo, Sagittarius, but, you know, like very much a, I love to live in my masculine, like got my, all my degrees and I can, you know, I can control and here's the algorithm and here's the linear, here's the track of my life and here's how it's all going to go. So when, for me, when things, when they haven't happened in the way that I planned or the way that I predicted, it's a little hard. It's a little hard to kind of get into this. Okay. Like there's a, there's a reason for this. This is a like there. And I'm working on my feminine, working on getting in, into my feminine and this idea of surrender, this idea of, I am, you know, 
the, I am the receiver of what's happening rather than me imparting the, you know, I am directing what's happening. I'm going to be, um, passive is not the right word, but, um, just being okay with whatever, what is, whatever it is that is. Um, and you taught, you mentioned soulmates that I, um, would love for you to touch on as well, because I think that we think in this Instagram heavy Snapchat world that, you know, soulmates are two ripped individuals that are tanned that live on the beach and, (laughs) or they're driving a really expensive car. And, you know, if you, if you want those things, I mean, of course, you know, go for it. But I think that we, um, I think we don't understand what that word is. So uh, can you explain what a soulmate is? And uh, as a secondary question, you know, you talk about this idea of your soul is potential and it's our, it's our responsibility to be a steward for this potential. Um, and so how do, how do we also do that as well? Two so, big questions. <laughs> the first um, about soulmates, people do very often think a soulmate is going to mirror like a fairy tale romance, right? It's going to be great all the time. I'm always going to feel happy. All my needs will be met, will be in bliss continuously and uninterrupted, right? That's not what a soulmate is. A soulmate actually is two halves of the same soul that were separated and they're finding themselves back together in this lifetime. Usually it comes through actually a lot of spiritual work, the more work you do on yourself on elevating yourself on expanding your consciousness, the more you merit that mirror part of you. Now I shouldn't say mirror that, that other part of you, because in truth, your soulmate is going to be somebody who actually, um, is different in a lot of ways, right? So you are able to bring each other to a complete balance. So one might be more, um, introverted, the other one's extroverted. The point is though, that your goals, your purpose, your intention is similar. It's two parts of the same kind of form, right? Like an apple tree and that would not be with a, with a pear tree. It's, it's two um, compatible uh, likes, right? So I think that people already make the misunderstanding of, you know, if, if I'm with my soulmate, it should be this perfection. And in reality, you can make any relationship, a soulmate relationship. It's how you interact and how you are in that relationship, how you behave. Um, it's not about making them identical to you. It's not about being two twinsies that, you know, everything is the same. And no, it's not, it's not. My husband and I are a perfect example. Um, we are different in a lot of ways in the physical, like, but where we're similar is again, our intention, our purpose, our beliefs. And when we came together, we actually became better people, but not like in the terms of like, we're better. Like for instance, he is a scholar. Um, he translated the Zohar from Aramaic to Hebrew to English when he was 23. And this work, these, these, it is so dense. You could study your whole life and really not understand anything. So that was at 23. At 23, I was doing very different things, right? So like I said, we grew up very differently and what attracted us, it didn't make sense. Um, but he also was very introverted. And when I got to know him, he was funny and he had this great sense of humor and, um, was fun and was a great friend. And these aspects, nobody else ever saw. Right. I only did when we came together, I helped him actually, but he wanted that to become that and show that and become that for other people in the world. For me, I was more extroverted, very social, but to be disciplined to, to study and to write was not 
was that that was not my strong suit, but he really awakened that in me. And together we've become this perfect balance of being able to be a great couple, but also individually we've grown in ways I don't think we could have had we not been together. With that said though, it takes being able to really be vulnerable with one another, being emotional intelligent, really being um, compassionate and more than anything, having appreciation for one another. The first thing that's lost in a relationship usually is appreciation. And when appreciation is lost, we think the love is lost and it's really not, we just can't access it because we're too busy seeing what's wrong rather than what's right. Right. And, you know, to little play on words like that, which you appreciate, of course, appreciates, right? It grows in value over time. And one of the things I I talk about with my partner is that we have a common future together. Uh, A lot of times people will have a common past. They will, you know, they went to the same school or they went to the same, they grew up in the same city or they went to the same, you know, like community center or whatever it is. And I think it's similar. It's paralleling what you were saying around there's a symbiosis that happens that you are better together than you are apart, but it's not the Jerry Maguire, you know, uh, what you complete me. You yeah. complete, it's not that you are two separate holes that come together. Or I like how you uh, talked about it. You're two, like your souls are uh, two parts of the same soul. And I think when you have a, you know, core beliefs, core premise, core philosophical uh, commonalities, then you're able to um, edify each other and to support each other and to allow your strengths to come, you know, to, to amplify those strengths and also to highlight which, you know, I, which I think is an important thing to highlight your shadow self as well. Like the, some of the dark, you know, bits like, you know, I, I've shared with you today, you know, very much type A working, you know, recovering type A probably will be for my whole life, but you know, that can, I can get very agitated. I can get very angry if things are not, but G, my partner's name is Giovanni. We have this, we call it the bubble. Like we, everything stays safe in the bubble. Like it's okay to be you know, I don't like to take days off. Like I don't like to not work. Right. So for me to, to take a day off, sometimes I'm really agitated. Um, and, um, that makes the day off super fun. I'm sure. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Right. But he, but he knows that about me and it's, he accepts that it's not like, okay, here we go again with, you know, workaholic Stephanie. So, um, Yeah. I think that there's some, there's a beautiful, you know, what you've described is beautiful in that you accept the whole person because you've accepted yourself. Like it has to start with your own self-acceptance. And I love how you said that you share a future, not the past. I think a lot of people do get together like that. And then it's not really enough. Um, The phrase I was looking for before is similarity of form. Mm. That's really what a soulmate is. Those two, because in form, right, is, is ultimately potential and those match up. Um, I think often people just find a partner with, from where they are in that moment, right. not thinking about who they want to become or what they might want in five or 10 years, um, which, yeah, becomes an which issue. Which is what a marriage about. makes, right? It's like, that's the, the contract that you sign is, is what's well, interesting 10, is yeah. people are like, Oh, you know, what happened? You've changed is not who I married. It's like, duh, <laughs> what did you expect? We are all changing. Our relationships will forever change. It's, it should be accepted and ultimately embraced. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said, beautifully said. So tell, tell us a little bit, uh, if you can, just in the couple of minutes that we have, uh, remaining, if people want to learn, I mean, a lot, your books are very, it's very obvious that you have studied, uh, you know, Kabbalah, you have all these Kabbalistic tools that you've integrated into some of these lessons. 
Um, if someone's interested in learning more about you, your teachings, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about, uh, your books, uh, the centers that I know that, um, are in a lot of major cities, but tell us a little bit about where we might be able to find more about you and your teachings. Thank you. So yeah, we have Kabbalah centers, um, all over the world. If you want to study deep Kabbalah, um, for many teachers, including myself, my husband, you can go to Kabbalah.com. Um, my website is rethinklife.today. Um, you can get my books, Rethink Love and Fears on Action on Amazon. And my husband and I have a podcast, which we talk about every single topic, but it also has a Kabbalistic bend and also science and psychology. Um, and of course, I like to talk about everything personal. So that is called Spiritually Hungry. And you can check that out wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes. And it's just been a pleasure talking to you. I think that we need to be highlighting more uh, women who have done the work. This is, you know, you talk about some of the struggles that you have, but you are not, these have been your greatest teachers. And I think that we need to highlight more women like you, you who have gone, you know, who have sunken down to the depths of, uh, you know, darkness and have, you know, like the uh, you know, like the Phoenix sort of risen above. Um, so thank you for your time and your presence and your wisdom today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been really fun for me. Thank you. Well, ladies, I hope with this episode, you now have some new tools to throat punch fear when it shows up in your life and to help you feel more grounded in who you are and following your dreams. And I wanted to close out today by leaving a leaving a review or shouting out someone who left a review on the podcast. Her name is Chrissy. She is from the great, she's from Great Britain. And she writes, Hey lady, I'm new to keto, but I love everything about your podcast. Just finished the one with the Frenchman coach who was fabulous. Thank you. And uh, the Frenchman coach that she's referring to, uh, we've only had one on the show. So that is Martin La Tulipe. And he is a mindset coach, very, very prominent in the French speaking world. So in countries like France and in the province of Quebec here in Canada. And he is an extraordinary individual. I have known him for many years and never shies away from a challenge. And actually in coming on the better podcast, this was his first full English interview. And he was telling me beforehand that he was very nervous about it, that, you know, he might forget the words or the language and everything. And of course, if you listen to the episode that we had, he was absolutely brilliant. Uh, he even serenades me. So, you know, if you want, if you, you want to think about goals in life, it's to have a French, a Frenchman serenade you. Um, and so I can check that off my list and you should go and check out that episode as well, because it was absolutely wonderful. And thank you, Chrissy, for leaving this review. Of course, I know that you are very busy. So the time that you take to do this is incredibly meaningful for me. And if you feel you, Betty, listening that uh, this podcast is giving you value in some way, please leave a review, please leave a rating. It helps the algorithm, however that algorithm works. It helps more Bettys find the podcast and it helps us to invest in ourselves so that we can invest in the world. When you invest in a woman, you invest in her in her body first, then in her family, then in her community, and then the world. So really, really thankful for all of you that have tuned in. And until next time, I bid you adieu and uh, we'll see you soon. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 